Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast, a show where we learn from the people and businesses on a mission to do things differently. In a first for the podcast, today we have not one but two guests. I was really fortunate to speak to Kim Scott and her business partner Tria Bryant about Kim's new book, which is out today, Tuesday the 16th of March, and is entitled Just Work, Get Shit Done Fast and Fair. I first came across Kim when we read her previous book, Radical Candor, as part of the Journey Further Book Club, a fantastic read all about how to give feedback in the right way and manage people more effectively. This new book, Just Work, dives even deeper into the challenges people face in the modern workplace. It offers a series of frameworks you can use to understand and tackle the various attitudes and forces which combine to create workplace injustice. From bias to prejudice and bullying, discrimination, harassment and even physical violations, Just Work is an incredibly important book about how we can create the types of environments where people are truly able to do their best work. Kim has had an impressive career in Silicon Valley, leading YouTube and double-click teams at Google and acting as a coach to the CEOs of Dropbox and Twitter. Tria Bryant is a veteran of the United States Air Force and has held executive talent and diversity roles at Twitter and Goldman Sachs, as well as advising businesses like SoundCloud and Airbnb on their talent and diversity, equity and inclusion strategies. Together with Kim, she's founded a business called Just Work to help organisations apply the thinking and frameworks from the book. There is so much interesting and actionable stuff in this episode. Please do go out and pick up a copy of the book for yourself. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe to stay up to date with the podcast. Here goes. Kim, Tria, thank you so much for finding the time to join me on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Excited. Yeah. Thanks for having us. So we'll kick off as we do with every single episode by asking you the question, what's the wrong you want to write? So Just Work the Book is all about workplace injustice. So I guess at a high level, that's the wrong we want to write. But the thing about workplace injustice is that that feels like a giant hairball that none of us can untangle. And so one of the things that I try to do in the book is to to parse the problem so that we can match solutions, or if not solutions, at least an effective way to combat each of these problems. So there's bias. And very often this problem, we sort of try to assume it's always bias, but it's not always bias. Bias is sort of not meaning it. Sometimes it's prejudice, which is really meaning it. And sometimes it's bullying, which is just being mean. The person's just being a jerk. And these are three different attitudes and behaviors. Uh, And then when you layer power on top of that, you get discrimination, harassment, and physical violations. So I guess you can call it one wrong, but maybe you could also call it six wrongs we're trying to write. I don't know, Tria, how would you, how would you state it? Yeah, I think it's, you know, just really getting to the root causes of these workplace injustices. And then I would also just say our, another mission is ending the default to silence. So Kim tells so many stories in the book. We tell stories in our talk, just talking about how like we both experienced these behaviors and attitudes in our careers, and we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what to say. And so, how can we provide people the tools that just gives them, um, you know, a better opportunity to respond if they choose, if they're the person being harmed, but if they're a 
bystander or the person causing harm or a leader absolutely taking their role and intervening and preventing these things from occurring. And you know, it's really, it's really interesting. One of the things that I've learned as a writer, like I, I think that I can get shit done by writing. Uh, and, and unfortunately this is a, this is a hard thing for a writer to, uh, to come to grips with. But after I, after Radical Candor was published, I realized that people don't always change their behavior because they read a book. They may love the book. The book may be fabulous. Please do read the books. But but often something more is needed in order to translate the thoughts in the books into realities on the ground in the workplace. And that's where Trier comes in because Trier uh, gets shit done by by working with people, uh, by by explaining to people how to put the ideas into practice. It's like the last mile. Is that a fair way to characterize it, Trier? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I completely agree. And you're completely right. There are so many great books out there on so many important topics, but it's all very well if, if, if that final step of actually changing something, actually implementing something, actually um, taking a step is missed then. As you say, then you could say, what's the point? I think I found it really interesting, the sort of introduction to uh, Just Work, where you speak about Kim. Obviously, Radical Candor was really well received, but you're quite critical of it. You do quite a clear sort of self-criticism <laughs> of it on on what it missed out. That It was really interesting hearing you speak about how it kind of missed the dimensions of gender and race and how those impact that sort of ultimately great way of feeding back being a manager being being a worker could you sort of expand a little bit on that and i guess how you got to the point of then trying to address those things and just work sure absolutely i I really do try to walk the radical candor walk i try to be self-critical so so shortly after radical candor came out i was giving a workshop at a tech company in san francisco and the ceo of the company is someone who i had known for the better part of a decade and one of two few black women CEOs in tech. And she pulled me aside after the workshop and she said, you know, Kim, thanks for coming in. I really love these ideas. I think radical candor is gonna help me build the kind of culture I want to build at this company. But she said, I gotta tell you, it's much harder for me to put it into practice than it is for anyone else to put it into practice. It's harder for me than it is for you. It's probably harder for you than it is for your husband. My husband's a a white, Uh, male engineer. And I I knew that was true. I knew she was exactly right. She said, as soon as I offer even the most compassionate candor, I get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And this really struck me hard. And it struck me hard for two reasons. One, it made me realize that I had known her for all these years and I had never seen her seem even the tiniest bit annoyed. She was always positive and and I thought, gosh, what what kind of toll must that have taken on her to have to, because believe me, I knew in that period of time she had what to be pissed off about. And uh, and what kind of toll must that have taken on her never to be able to, never to be able to express her natural human emotions? And also, why had I never noticed? Why had I never noticed? And this really got me to thinking because uh, as I thought about it, I realized not only had I not noticed the toll it was taking on her, I ha- I was in denial about the things that had happened to me in, my, in, in the course of my career. And that's a hard thing for the author of Radical Candor to confess. Like if you had, if you had asked me at the beginning of writing Just Work, 
whether I had experienced much gender injustice in the workplace. I would have said, nah, not really. And then I started writing it and was like, holy cow, every hour of my career, I've experienced some form of, of at the very least, bias. And I, I start off the book telling a story about my very first job, which was, when I thought about it, pretty awful. Mm, yeah, it, it certainly sounded so. And I, and I guess that that feeds in probably to one of the things I, I, I wanted to, to talk about, and that is when someone has been a victim of, of workplace injustice, whether that is as a result of bias or prejudice or something much more severe, a, a, a physical violation, for example, what advice would you give to someone who actually feels they might want to try and tell that story? They might actually want to be open about it. What, what sort of advice would you give someone at that point? Yeah, so um, we talk about these statements in the book and when we're discussing bias, prejudice, and bullying. So for bias, we talk about an I statement. So an I statement is inviting someone in because bias is not meaning it. So we're inviting someone in so that they can understand how their behavior or their action made you feel. So for example, you know, um, I don't feel comfortable working in this environment for people who think that way or believe that way if someone has a bias towards you. Um, so inviting them in so that they can relate and then understand the harm that they're causing. Prejudice, though, is meaning it. And so we talk about the it statement. And so the it statement is focusing on the actual prejudice thought or, you know, idea. So one of the stories that, you know, I tell is of a black woman getting her, she uh, came and interviewed with her national hair out and she ultimately ended up not getting the job because of her hair. So in that moment, the it statement would be, you know, it's illegal to discriminate against someone, um, at least in the U.S., particularly in the state of California now that has passed the Crown Act, um, to discriminate against someone during an employment interview based on their hair. And then bullying, you know, we discuss having an, a you statement, which is really putting the focus on them, right? Like if someone's bullying you and being mean, like you can't talk to me that way. Um, or, hey, what, what's going on with you for you to be behaving in this way? And so it's really putting it back on them and having them reflect on themselves. Um, then when we get into discrimination and harassment and then physical violations, um, there's a lot of things that, you know, we, we discussed in the book so that someone doesn't feel like they're going to blow up their career by actually responding to something, right? Whether that's making sure you're documenting things, going and talking to your HR people team, um, reporting it to a manager, but also what the organization needs to have in place so that people do feel comfortable. So one of the things with physical violations is making sure that an organization has trusted reporting systems, because we know too often that people don't report because they see other people who do, um, and then the victim ends up getting blamed or more harm being caused. So when an organization can really um, ensure that there are trusted reporting systems for people to leverage, you know, that really goes a long way. Yeah, because I, I found the bit about talking about those, those potential rationalizations which people go through which might hinder them actually speaking out or telling their story and there are so many as you say like oh, i don't want to be seen as causing a stir I, and maybe this wasn't as serious as i interpreted it maybe i'm not the only one who something like this has happened to so i don't want to draw attention to myself and yeah it's it's you can see how very easily it becomes something which doesn't seem like a good thing to do yeah yeah, and telling your story can mean a lot of different things, right? It could be writing a blog post where it's very public, or it could be telling your story within the organization to, you know, gain other people 
um, to gaining that support from other folks of what has happened. I love the way that you just sort of outlined the different stories we tell ourselves and the d different reasons that we have for being silent. And all of those things are legitimate. I don't, I don't want to say everybody, you know, everybody should speak up all the time because there, there are moments where you just need a damn paycheck and, and uh, before you feel like you have the energy to start fighting for social justice. You know, I said that in a way that was flip, like that's a real thing. And I certainly have done it more times than, been, remained silent more times than I've spoken up throughout my career. That's part of what I'm coming to grips with in this book. But I will say one thing. I hope once people have read the book or gone through a, a workshop with, with Trier and me, I really hope that people will stop and think about, yes, there are risks to speaking up, but there are also risks to silence. And I want people to understand better the risks to silence. And also there's an opportunity to speaking up. Uh, I'll give you just a small example. I was interviewing for a job and I was, I was really excited about the company. I really liked the founders. And I had just had two small kids. I had just had twins. Uh, and they were, they were like one-year-old. So it was early. And in the interview process, and I was sort of moving closer and closer to thinking, yeah, this is maybe the job for me. Right at the end, the founder, who was, who was a young man, as founders often are in Silicon Valley, he was like 22 or something, he said, you know, every day at, at seven o'clock, we do yoga together as a team. And he really viewed this as this great bonding, this wonderful opportunity, great. But I mean, for me, doing yoga at seven and being finished with yoga at eight, getting home at nine and never seeing my children. And he, he had no idea. He had no idea that this practice, which, was, which he so cherished, was going to discriminate against anyone who was a parent who wanted to see their child, you know, a, a mother or a father. But I didn't say anything to him. I just like, I practically, when I heard about the yoga, I practically turned on my heel and ran out of there. <laughs> I, I ran away. And if I had, I, I've gotten to know this guy since then, I, I know for sure now that if I had said something to him, he would have immediately understood what I meant and changed the time of the yoga. We have a default to silence, I think, in, 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 our, in ourselves and in our society. And I would like to challenge that default to silence. Yeah, because I, I, one of the things which I was thinking as I was reading was that there's often this debate about your work life and your personal life. And obviously, last year through the Black Lives Matter movement, the years that were previous to that with Me Too and everything like that, there was so much more attention paid to, to issues like, like these in, in the world at large, not just specifically related to work. But then I find it really interesting because obviously the workplace is a crucial place to sort of tackle these questions. And it's dangerous to try and call, like draw a line and say, oh, well, that's work and I behave and I'm going to do this much when it comes to my work life or behavior or values but I'm going to keep so much this part separate. I feel like that's a really challenging thing. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, whoever we are and whatever past we have, we bring into work with us. There's no, there's no two ways about it. Uh, I think the reason why I focused on workplace injustice, uh, I'm just going to be very radically candid here, not broader social uh, injustice, is that I wanted to focus on 
on environments where I knew how to change the rules. Like there's a lot of laws that need to be changed. Uh, there's a lot of policies that need to be changed. And I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a lawyer by design. Like I don't wanna, uh, uh, I'm not a policy, policy person by design, uh, but I do know about the workplace. And I think if we can begin to create change here, then, then I'll leave the work of, of policy and law to, to, there's a lot of great people working on those things. Trier has a really good story about how Black Lives Matter came into the workplace, though, in, in, a, in a way that was painful. Yeah, I, um, so 2020 was a challenging year for everyone uh, for various different reasons. I think a particular population that I'm, I'm showing bias here is being a professional in this industry, um, but our HR professionals, um, because especially in some areas where I would say in the United States where we were looking to our government administration for guidance on how to deal with this pandemic and there was a lot of gaps. And so I think people were looking to some type of authoritative organization to say, hey, how are we gonna deal with this? And what I found is a lot of people turning to their companies and demanding answers from their companies and that fell heavily on HR leaders and professionals. Um, and then all of that, to your point with the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, um, as a Black woman, as an HR leader within an organization, it was a lot to just mm -hmm. kind of lead through and carry for an organization. And I got to the point where I just woke up one day and I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't stop crying and I had to call my CEO and say, I need to take three days off, like with no work, just totally unplug. And I said, I literally can't even stop crying to come into work. And we were a company where, you know, 80% of our employees had to physically be in the office to do the work. Um, and so we were continuing to go into work every day. And um, after that, I returned after the three days and we had a company all hands. And I went and spoke to the whole company uh, at the all hands about my experience and how it felt. And I said, hey, I'm not talking to you as, a, as your HR leader. I'm just talking to you as a Black person in this nation right now, what it feels like in this moment, how heavy it feels and how difficult it is and how scary it is. Um, and when we have all hands, you know, we, we were really pushing a culture of transparency and, and saying what you mean and expressing your, yourself fearlessly. And so we had on the big screen, there was a place where employees could type questions so that leaders could ask it. But when I was speaking, instead of an employee typing a question, they anonymously put in the comments, can we move on now? Ugh. As I was speaking, you know, that was just really hard. And because I did it anonymously, it was how you felt of that. I know that I now work with someone who feels this way, who feels that when I'm taking this moment of being vulnerable and sharing my experience as a black professional in the United States, as a black person in the United States, um, that they just wanted to move on and, and, and bypass that. And so dealing with these things in the workplace can be challenging, but we do need just the same way that, you know, authors write all types of books about leadership principles and frameworks and, and feedback frameworks like radical candor. We need more, um, tools as leaders and individuals in the workplace to deal with these situations that we know we're going to find ourselves in and play different roles. Um, and so we, and so that is what I think is so powerful about just work is that by no means is it a framework that's going to 
deal with everything and it's a silver bullet, but we need more tools like this book that will help people because in that moment, I didn't know what to do, right? But if I had read this book, that was clearly an opportunity of just being mean and I could have used a use statement. And then also one of the things that we talk about in the book is that when how you stop bullying is providing consequences, right? But we didn't provide consequences to this person. And so that type of behavior just continued to perpetuate in the organization. So if I were going to use the, the framework in Just Work to say what should have happened in that moment in the, in the story that Trier just told, first and foremost, the CEO of the company should have stood up, ripped the, ripped the cord out of the computer that was showing the cloud and said, this is not the way we are going to talk to each other. He should have provided an immediate consequence that would have shown that that kind of that kind of behavior was was not going to be tolerated at the company, uh, or if the CEO had failed to do that. And I wanna I wanna offer some like it is really hard to know what to do in a moment for everyone. So so I wanna so let's say the CEO is a human being and he screwed up and he didn't do that. At the very least, five or ten people should have come up to Trier afterwards and said, "I'm so sorry about what was." Like there's such an important role for upstanders and it really doesn't take much to walk up to someone who you, who you noticed who just got bullied and, and, and say, are you okay? Is there anything I can do to help? That is, that is one way of being an upstander or maybe the CEO, if the CEO failed, somebody else could have stood up and ripped the thing out and said, that's bullshit. What, whoever typed just that, you're an asshole. Uh, like somebody could have done that. Anybody in the in the company could have done that. It would have been better if it was the CEO, but anybody there could have done that. Uh, and, and so it shouldn't, the burden of Trier recognizing that she had just been bullied and responding public, it, that the burden of that shouldn't be on the person who is is harmed. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and then I think there's more of a sort of thinking through your systems. Do you really want to put anonymous comments up in a public place? I, I think that kind of system is prone to bullying. And so in, in the workplace, do you really want to, to you're going to encourage that kind of behavior when you allow anonymous comments put up in a public place. So there's a lot of things to think about, like, are you, are you creating systems that allow this kind of behavior? And what can we as individuals, all of us, any of us do in the moment to combat that kind of obnoxious behavior? Yeah, and I think obviously, yeah, naturally people do, as you say, look to a leader for, for their response. And that is what being a leader is all about. You're the person who people look to by default. But I, I think it is really interesting what you wrote about yeah, upstanders in the book, because I think probably people uh, underestimate the power that they have, even if they're not in a leadership position. There's there's power in numbers there, especially if you get numerous upstanders, right? Sort of yes, saying even a sentence or a couple of sentences or um, a, a, a nod of support. Yeah, I guess what, what what advice would you would would you give to someone who? maybe has those thoughts themselves thinking, I don't think that was just, I don't think that was dealt with in the right way. What advice would you give to someone so they can take that step and become a, a vocal upstander? There's Hollaback has a really good uh, um, sort of framework, which is the five Ds. You can say something directly in the moment. You can distract a person. There, there's, a, there's a story about someone on the New York subway uh, a, a, a man was sort of 
sexually harassing a woman and, and someone on the subway didn't, they didn't feel comfortable intervening directly, but they caused a distraction. They threw their chips all over and it like distracted everybody, including the guy who was harassing the woman and gave the woman a chance to get away. You can, you can delegate, you can turn to the person next to you and say, can you do, I don't feel comfortable. Can you do something? You can also document what, what happened. And if you do document, uh, it's especially easy in, in this day and age to film something. You want to make sure that then you turn to the person who was harmed by the by the behavior and say, what do you want me to do with this? And then you can delay. You can just go up to the person later and say, are you okay? I think very often that last thing is the easiest thing to do and, and surprisingly important. I remember one time I was on stage with this guy who was known to be... Um, he didn't hire many women. We'll put it that way. And he shook all the men's hand. And then when he got to my hand, he, he like made this ridiculously low bow and he kissed my hand, but he really like slobbered. All, it was disgusting. And it was in front of, you know, a big audience. All I could do not to wipe my hand on my pants. And that was bad. Like that was annoying. But what was worse is that not a single person came up to me afterwards and said, gosh, that was really obnoxious or creepy or anything. And then I was like, does everybody think that's okay? You know, so then you're left not only with this one person who did this, who did this sort of, who committed a physical violation, but you're left feeling like the whole environment is problematic because everybody thinks it's okay. And I, I think there's, there's, there's a quote in the book about silence in the face of bias, prejudice or bullying is rarely a peaceful silence. Yeah, and yeah as you say, that that silence really pervades and sticks and gets all sorts of other emotions and and feelings sort of welling up, I guess. Yeah, I think under, I mean, for me at least, I, I often, I, I, I succumbed to the default to silence too many times in my career. And it left me feeling like I didn't have agency. And that's a real cost. It left me feel, and then it also left the, I kept coming back to these incidents in my mind, whereas the incidents that I spoke to quickly, they were they were done. Like I could forget about them, uh, assuming nothing worse happened. Which occasionally, I, I don't want to say there's there's no risk associated with speaking up. There is a risk. Sometimes you'll think you're you're seeing bias, and you speak up, and and you realize, oh no, it's prejudice, and you don't really. <clears throat> again, I think the role of denial in all this is so important to recognize. At least for me, it's much easier for me to imagine something is biased than to realize it's prejudice. I'll give you a simple story that that illustrates. I was chit-chatting with a guy before a meeting, and uh, and he said, my wife doesn't work because it's better for the children. And I assumed he didn't quite mean that he thought I was a neglectful mother because I was working. But So I wanted to make a little joke of the situation to give him an opportunity to, to you know, to sort of back off. And I said, yeah, I decided to show up at work today because I wanted to neglect my children. And I was expecting a laugh and, a, you know, kind of an apology. And instead he's like, oh no, Kim, I'm going to give you all these studies. It's really bad for your kids that you're working. And now all of a sudden, like that's not unconscious bias. It is a very conscious prejudice that he has against uh, women who work. And I didn't want to read his studies. I knew he didn't want to read my studies. So what do I do in the moment? What I wanted to do is 
to make it really clear to him that there was a lot, he could believe whatever he wanted to believe. And I didn't want to engage with his beliefs because I didn't think I was going to change them. And, and he certainly wasn't going to change my beliefs, but I did want him to know that he couldn't impose his beliefs on me. And there was an opportunity for him to do so because we were working on a project that required travel. He got to decide who was going to go where. If he thought I was neglecting my children by traveling, then uh, then he wasn't going to put me on certain plum assignments. So it was like it had a, it wasn't just a theoretical problem. It was going to have an impact on my career. And so I said to him, it is an HR violation for you to tell me I'm neglecting my children by showing up at work. So I wanted I wanted to like lay lay down the line very clearly. And luckily I worked at a company yeah. that had very clear policies around this sort of thing. And then I could see he was nervous and, and pissed and, and I was still going to have to work with him. And I didn't really want to go to HR about this. Uh, and, and, and so I said, look, I'm not going to make a big deal of, of this with HR, but I want you to know that it is really cruel what you said. And and it is my decision, together with my spouse, how we raise our children. It is your decision, together with your spouse, how you raise your children. Don't impose your beliefs on me. And with that, we were able to proceed. Uh, but, it, but it did take, a, it's much harder to deal with, with a situation when you realize someone has a belief about you, something about you and what you're doing that is, uh, that is prejudiced. Yeah, I think that's a, I mean, that's a great example, I guess, of how it's so important for people to become self-aware of their own biases or, or prejudices. I guess may, maybe a question for you, Tria, like when you're going in helping businesses on this journey, what advice or frameworks can you offer to, I guess, help people become more self-aware? Maybe people who, I'm sure people read the book and they'll think, wow, maybe I've been a perpetrator and in various ways here that I hadn't really realized. What are the ways which people can start to become more self-aware, I guess, and start trying to uh, address their own biases and prejudices? <clears throat> What's interesting is when I first read the book, I, uh, I had this aha moment, as Oprah says, where what really struck a chord with me was everything that Kim talked about around bullying. Because for me, if you would have asked me, Trier, have you ever been bullied in your career? I would have said, no, Nathan, like, have you met me? Do you know who I am? Like, if you come for me, I'm gonna come for you, right? Um, but breaking it down with just like this being mean, I really had to acknowledge, wow, Trier, you've been bullied a lot in your career. And not even just the time that I was in the military and at the, mili at the Air Force Academy, even beyond that. Um, and I also had to own that, like, I didn't, I couldn't recognize it. So even if you feel like you know what to do or you didn't, this understanding this framework or just, you know, reflecting on your own professional experiences and again, the different roles that you may have played at various different situations is really eye-opening, I think, for anyone. And we were, Kim and I were doing something yesterday with the Wall Street Journal and someone said, I haven't even read the book, but just the way you talk about the framework, I'm just thinking about my own experiences at work and it's just eye-opening, right? Of like, oh, I have experienced that, but what did I do or what didn't I do in that moment? Um, and so I think one, it is giving employees within a company the tools 
to even be able to name it, right? Because once we name it, then we can solve for it. So number one, let's identify it. And then once we identify it, then what are the things that we as individuals, but then also what is the infrastructure that an organization needs to put in place to mitigate these situations, to you know, mitigate and prevent these situations from occurring. And, and this is not to say again that like we're going to absolutely eradicate workplace injustices. Um, I believe it will happen one day, but it's probably not in my lifetime. Um, but we do have to make an effort. And we have to, you know, do the work. And it's not anything, one of the things that you'll hear a lot in the DEI, the diversity, equity, and inclusion space is, oh, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. But I would argue it's not a marathon either. For those of us who have run a marathon, we happily know that there's a destination and an endpoint where you stop. Versus this work where it's it's a lifelong commitment that we all have to just be cognizant of every day and doing the work. Um, and we have to understand our roles in that. And so that's where we come in to say, hey, what are those very specific things that an organization to, can do to start getting changed behavior within an organization and sustaining that? So for example, with bias, one of the things that we suggest that organizations do to combat bias is to put in place bias interrupters or bias disruptors. And this is like a shared vocabulary for a team. So a leader will sit down with their team and say, okay, we need to interrupt bias when we hear it in meetings. And we need to acknowledge that we're going to hear bias in every single meeting we have. And that, and so we've got to interrupt it often. And so what's the, what's the phrase that we're going to use to interrupt the bias when we, when we notice it in a meeting? And uh, Trier ha has worked with a company that wanted to flow a, throw a purple flag. Uh, uh, one company I worked with, they just wanted to say, yo. Another company felt that yo was really absolutely the wrong way uh, to, to interrupt bias. One, because they said that word all the time. And two, because they felt like it was making light of it. Other phrases that work for different teams are, I don't think you meant that the way it sounded. Some teams use phrases from Daniel Kahneman. So the point is, there's not a right way to interrupt the bias, but there's a right way on your team, and you all need to figure out what it is. What's the phrase you're going to use? And it needs to be short. Uh, it's sort of like if you're reminding your kids to brush their teeth, giving them a long lecture every time on dental hygiene is not effective. It's more, it's more effective to say, brush your teeth or toothbrush or, you know, the, the, so the, the smaller number, the number of words, the better. And so then what happens when somebody says something and somebody throws a purple flag? We also need to teach ourselves and each other how to respond because it can feel very threatening when somebody says you've said something biased. Sometimes it feels like the zipper to your soul has come undone and uh, reveals something you'd rather not show. And that's not what's going on with bias. So the way to respond when somebody points out your bias is either if you understand why what you said was biased, just say, thank you for pointing it out. I'm sorry, it won't happen again. If you don't get it, say, I don't quite get it. Can we talk after the meeting? And you're done. Then you proceed with your meeting. Now, there's some debate about whether or not this is, shouldn't we talk longer? But the, the, the issue that I have with talking longer is that if you talked in great detail about the bias that happens in every single meeting, you would not get shit done. Uh, so, so, so the compromise that I propose is point it out, move on, talk later if you don't understand. 
Um, so that's a, a very specific thing that leaders, and, and as Trier said, this is not going to solve, this is not going to eliminate bias from the world, but it'll begin to chip away at it on your team. Um, but when it comes to prejudice, uh, one of the things I suggest in the book is, is a code of conduct. And since I met Trier, Trier has a lot of nuances on that. I'll let her talk about it. But that when it comes to prejudice, self-awareness is not going to solve the problem because if you hold up a mirror to someone with a prejudice, they're going to smile and they're going to be like, yeah, damn straight. That's what I think. And so, so what do you do in those cases? Uh, Making them aware of their prejudice is not going to change it. It is really about making sure that you have something in place that people can hold other people accountable to. It needs to have something with some teeth in it. Um, So you can't just sit with your team and say, this is how we're going to interact. And if you violate that, then you're in trouble. This one small team within a larger organization, it has to be something that um, the company will hold people accountable to. And if you act in a way that's outside of that code of conduct, then you know there will be consequences. Those consequences that Trier was was talking about also need to apply to bullying. And you need to have consequences right in conversation. You need to have consequences in people's compensation. And you need to have consequences in career. Uh, You don't want to create a situation where you're promoting your brilliant jerks, so to speak. Yeah, because I I find this really interesting. Uh, Like, as a business, we've hired so many people in the last sort of six to nine months And it's this question of how do you very quickly create um, a view in their mind of like, okay, this is how I'm expected to uh, behave and interact. And and this is why it's almost like, how do you how do you really immediately instill what you're trying to achieve in in, in terms of creating a workplace? I guess particularly if you're growing, if a business is growing really fast. Yeah, so you've got to start by talking to your employees. If you if you are a leader of a workplace and you want to create a different culture, you need to have a good understanding of what's going wrong. So if the if the predominant problem is bias, then focus on bias. But if you talk to your employees and you find out that that there's a big sexual harassment problem, for example, at your company, and the, and and you're going to be the last to know often about that uh, about about those problems then then you need to you need to address that first so it, you need to sort of take inventory and and t- take proactive measures to understand what's going what's going wrong and one of the most important things i think a leader can do to make sure that that it's safe in their organization to speak truth to power because that's the way you find you've got to create the kind of environment where it is safe is to put in place checks and balances. So no one in the organization, including the CEO gets unilateral decision-making authority so that there's always someone else to go to and talk to. No, that makes complete sense. I wanted to ask a little bit, I guess, on how do you see the, increased remoteness and i guess dispersion of of workers playing out when it comes to um trying to create more just work workplaces like what impact is that gonna have yeah i think um so we were we were discussing this yesterday about how i suspect that some of these particularly bias 
um, is creeping up more often in this virtual environment where, you know, we just have less texture over, you know, a Zoom um, to really make those human connections. And so we know that a lot of times when we're sitting across from someone who looks different than us, we can make assumptions that we don't have a lot in common um, and that's not the case. And so there's a lot of things that are just missing. And when we are, you know, face to face, like, like, you know, maybe we both have an obsession over sneakers because I see you're wearing the new sneakers and you see me wearing the new ones, but like, when was the last time you saw someone's shoes or let alone, you know, whether or not someone's wearing pants, which apparently a lot of people don't on Zoom. Um, it's, it's more difficult and people have to make more of a conscious effort, um, which is okay, but just being cognizant of that, of like, how are we building rapport and how are we making those human connections? I think so specifically, one of the things that we recommend that leaders do is take more time at the beginning of a meeting to do a check-in and for people to just tell each other what's going on in their in their lives uh so so what are you coming into this meeting with what's you know and it, a check-in could be like light-hearted funny story from the weekend or it could be more serious what's going on in your life that you're bringing into this meeting that you're going to have to set aside for a second so that you can be present or can you set it aside and i think this uh, this feels often like, oh, we're going to waste five minutes chit-chatting at the beginning of the meeting. No, this is actually a, a great, not only is it a great justice tool because people get to know each other better, uh, a great relationship builder, it's also very much more efficient in the long run because so often someone will come into a meeting and something will be happening in their lives that is, that is really difficult. And if they don't tell people, everybody's going to say, gosh, why is Kim pissed off? You know, is she pissed at me? Is she? And then that creates, that creates a lot of inefficiency, actually. Uh, it also gives colleagues the opportunity to be truly kind to one another. So I'll, I'll give you a very specific and meaningful example to me. Uh, recently, my, my father went into hospice care. And I had to fly back to Memphis to, to be with my family. And I was still trying to work. I, I, I'm, I'm, I talk a, a good game about work-life balance. I, I, don't always, I don't always walk the walk on that. And Trier sent me a text. And she said, Kim, I'm saying this with love. You need to be with your family. I have deleted all events from your calendar. <laughs> I was like, that is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for me in my career. I was so very grateful but if I but if I hadn't told Trier and if she hadn't asked me what was she could tell something was going on with me, then she wouldn't have had the opportunity to do that. So it's really important that we create the time and the space to know what's going on uh, for one another. Yeah, that's interesting. I saw a uh, an article yesterday, I think, and it, it said that um, CEOs in remote work have become more connected to their teams and as you say it's that there is a positive element to it where some of those barriers of like hierarchy have been broken down because then you've kind of leveled the playing field to everyone just being a square on a screen rather yeah. than a 
various different characters in a in a physical environment yeah. which i thought was quite interesting and we're all in each other's living rooms and bedrooms and pets are running by and kids are running by and uh, you know spouses are taking showers and we have more more insight into uh into life but there is a problem i think with zoom which is what one of the underappreciated aspects of bullying is what i call the bloviating bullshitter and this is the person who doesn't really know any more than anyone else in in a meeting but takes up 40% more airtime than anyone else in the in the meeting we all know that we, we all know and we i've frankly i'm guilty of being the bloviating bullshitter uh quite a lot. And and the reason, the problem is that bloviating bullshit works. It works for the bullshitter, but it's very bad for the collective efforts of the team. There's there's tons of research that shows that when everyone on the team participates in roughly equal measure, then, uh, then more gets done. Better decisions get made. There's more innovations, more effective teamwork. And one of the one of the opportunities that it doesn't not not that many teams I've worked with have used this. But one of the opportunities of doing these Zoom meetings is everybody could get a report at the end about what percentage of time they talked. And uh, I imagine my report would would illuminate to me that I, I was the bloviating bullshitter on the call and I need to tamp it down. Uh, so there there are opportunities. That's interesting. Yeah, like another a new sort of measurement point which can feed into this this stuff. Yeah, I guess, Tria, I wanted to get your opinion on on this. One of the debates that we've had internally over the, quite a lot of the past couple of years is about pay transparency. There's there's a few sort of stories related to this in the book. Have you seen that, um, I guess, pushed successfully in workplaces? And if so, like what have been the things which have made it a success? Yeah, um, it's, it's a really big deal, but I think that we have to, when we talk about pay inequities, it's not just about getting it right, but then again, what do you put in place to maintain that equitability for new hires and for people who continue to stay at the company? And that's where a lot of organizations miss of even taking a step at all with this. Um, in the book, one of the things that we talk about that organizations can do is quantifying the bias, right? And so even doing an analysis can quantify for an organization if there is a pay inequity and most organizations if you've never quantified that and if you've never measured it you're probably going to see that there are some inequities there okay so then what do you do about it you have to correct it but then you also have to look at how you got there so what are your hiring practices what are the things you're doing something that's really small that you know i i always implement with my teams is a lot of organizations hire with compensation bands. So just using round numbers for a role, let's say the compensation band is 100,000 to 120,000. Well, if a candidate says, I'm really, I would be really excited to take this job for $95,000, um, a lot of organizations will allow the recruiter or hiring manager to say, great, well, you can do the job for 95, but we were willing to pay you 100, right? Um, and so even just simply saying, hey, even if they come under what the minimum is, we're still gonna give them compensation that's within the band, right? And then the second though, is a lot of times um, when you stay within an organization, 
the market is constantly changing. And so if you're not changing compensation internally, your internal equity for employees, then that means that, again, that they're not becoming, they're not continuing to meet the market. So it's not just about looking at your compensation to bring new hires in, but making sure that your current hires are, con are consistently competitive and paid equitably against each other within market as well. And it's not just base salary, right? Total compensation. It's looking at this and measuring this across base salary, your bonuses, your cash bonuses, your equity, um, you know, and also your benefits. There's a lot of benefits as you become more senior, you know, um, in one organization, I knew some people that got reimbursed for their transportation home after working a late night, but some didn't. And it seemed to be that more men had this, um, you know, in their compensation package than women. So what are the things that you're asking for and making sure um, that an organization is looking at it holistically from a total compensation package? And I think a radical version of that, one that I've put into practice that maybe not every company would, is to publish those bands and, and to say to everybody, uh, you know, this job at this level, you know, these are the bands. And then the person knows not to ask for $95,000 because they know what the band is and they know that they could get paid at least $100,000. Uh, you know, it, it's going to, when you do that, when you publish the, the, the bands, there's going to be a lot of pushback and uh, that, that $20,000 will become a really big deal for people, that 100 to 120. And you're going to have to explain to people why they got 100 and so-and-so got 120. And those are conversations that a lot of organizations and, and leaders would rather avoid. But my sense is that you're better off having those conversations than not having the conversations in the long run. Because if you don't, then you're going to do things that are unfair. You're going to sort of unconsciously reflect and reinforce bias in the market. So if you always pay people what they were paid in their last job and women are paid less than, than, than men, and black women are paid less than white women, then then you're gonna you're gonna do the same thing that the market is doing, and you're gonna say, oh, it's the market, it's not me. That's bullshit. It's uh, it's pay discrimination, and you're you're excusing pay discrimination with the market, and and I just don't think that's right. No, I completely agree. So yeah, when I read the passage or the section about alcohol in the book that just like really like hit home for me um yeah like every every workplace i've ever been in there's been alcohol's played probably quite a big part of it probably too big a part it's been just a natural part of the culture the way of working used to celebrate good stuff used to commiserate when when things don't go right but the way you write about it kim is so matter of fact just like it's so obvious that you shouldn't be promoting drinking alcohol in the workplace but so many businesses either directly or indirectly do it's like why what are we getting so wrong yeah i mean look you're talking to a person who for much of my life was a, a very heavy drinker uh, and, and early, I mean, early in my, my, I started out my career in Russia and believe me, there was a lot of drinking. I think I tell a story in the book and, and I'm, I'm going to teach these, these Russian, uh, tank factory, uh, managers to write a business plan. At the end of the day, they're like, wow, 
let's see if you can drink vodka like you can write a business plan. And these guys are big. These are big guys. These guys are probably three times my weight, each one of them. And I decide for some stupid reason that I am Wonder Woman and I can match these men shot for shot. And it was it was ridiculous. Physically, there was a physical impossibility. And yet there's so much in the culture that sort of pushes people beyond their physical limits. I wound up throwing up on my dinner plate. It was not my, not my finest moment uh, in my career. And so I think that a heavy drinking culture, it, it creates enormous problems for everyone. It, it, when you are drunk, it's much harder for you to understand whether or not consent is being given. So you're more likely to violate someone physically. When you are drunk, you're less able to defend yourself. And you're also much less likely to, to remember that somebody was just kind of coming onto you and you pushed them off and now they're coming back. So it's much harder to sh share how you're feeling when you're drunk. So I think it's really important for, for companies to realize that, I mean, I've seen such disasters. I've seen somebody punch a cop because he was drunk at a at a, an offset site. I've seen somebody throw up all over the couch in the office. I, I mean, so many workplace disasters have happened as a result of alcohol in the workplace. And when you when you really look at the downside, you gotta it just begs a question: Is it really is it really worth it? I'm conscious of time, so to, to wrap up, there's been so much interesting stuff we've heard there in the discussion, but I've got three final questions for you both uh, to answer. Firstly, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in? So I grew up as a Christian scientist, which is one of the few religions founded by a woman. And, and Mary Baker Eddy, who founded that religion, well, she wrote, I'll get the quote not quite right, but she wrote that the feminine is the highest ideal of God. And so she basically, she basically believed that women were superior to men. And at least that was my interpretation of what she wrote. And I believed this for, I really, I also was, my, my grandmother and her sisters were very much a matriarchy. And, uh, and so I really just thought that women were superior and that men were kind of less intelligent and less less moral and less kind. I mean, I, I hate to say that it sounds so harsh, but I did sort of have that belief. And it was called in the, I didn't really question that belief until I was a senior in high school and I was reading William Wordsworth and, I, and it suddenly dawned on me, oh my gosh, a man wrote this poem. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, when, when my father read that in the book, he was like, but how could you think that? Like, what about your grandfather? And what about me? He sort of said the same thing that, that, uh, that women have said to, to the men in their lives for so long. And, and I don't have a, how could I, I think the, the tendency to dichotomize artificially and, and degrade is so deep in us that we often sort of grab onto these beliefs uh, of, of our own superiority along some dimension that are completely irrational when you stop and look at them, but that, that can go deep. I mean, I remember when my children were in kindergarten, they, they were telling somebody that their school was better than any other school because it had a library. And I said to them, well, every school in, in, in our area has a library. 
and they were crestfalling fallen. And I said, why are you less excited about your library? Because everybody has a, like, it's great that everybody has a library. And, uh, and yet that, that desire to sort of attribute things and then, and then be, become convinced of your own superiority is, is, is deep and, and learning how to question those beliefs. Um, and, and the thing about my belief in female superiority is that it was inevitable that that belief was going to get challenged given, given the world in which we live. But a, a young boy who believes that, that men are superior, that belief is less likely to get challenged by the world in which we live. Uh, so, so I think mm. it's important to keep, keep that in mind. Completely. What do I believe in that um, I used to not believe in? I think more recently with COVID, I used to believe that companies knew what they were doing as they were building and designing their, their organizations and how they thought about work. And I don't believe in that anymore. Um, I think that I will very much question any company that comes out on the other side of this and is still hiring talent that needs to be located to come in, like, like co-located where their office is and to actually come into work. Um, and so that's actually something that I don't, I don't, and as from a people leader who has also been responsible for workplace, that's been a really big shift in, in how I would now design workplaces and how you think about culture. And I think the default now is a remote person. Um, and that's how you should design your systems. And that's how you should be thinking about your people practices and then go from there. No, it's interesting. As you say, it's a massive shift and the companies who rapidly adapt are the ones who are going to win in the short to medium term. I think a lot of companies are going to very quickly struggle if they, if they don't realize that. So if this wasn't your mission, uh, I guess pushing forwards the, the creation of more just workplaces, what would be? My mission would be rewilding. Uh, there's this notion that we should take half of the earth's uh, sort of area and leave it wild, not inhabit it, not grow mm. crops there, but, but let it, let nature take its course with, with half of the world's acreage. And I think this is actually interesting. really interesting and really important. Um, so, so that, that, that I think would be my thing. If I had another lifetime, uh, that would be, that would be my thing, but this is building more greater justice where, where we are is, uh, seems to me more, more urgent problem. Nice. For me, um, and this is something that I will definitely do eventually, um, a mission that is very dear to me is the mental health and the mental state of Black women in particular. I don't think that we collectively in a lot of societies discuss, acknowledge mental health, but particularly within the Black community and for Black women, um, it is a void, it's, it's taboo. And again, like last year was really, really challenging. And when I looked around to other, you know, women, black women that identify as I do, people were struggling and it just didn't seem like there was a lot of resources or care. Um, and so I just, that would be something that is something that I'm focused on as well. It's just how do we think about that and how do we take care of our black women? Sure. And finally, to wrap up, uh, if you could recommend one book for members of the Journey Further Book Club to read, what would be your recommendation? So I'm going to take you all off piste. I would recommend rereading, if you haven't already read it, War and Peace by, by Tolstoy. 
that I just reread that book or listened to it. Uh, I think that counts as reading. I, actually, I recommend listening to it because it's long. It's a 55-hour read. Mm. Uh, so you, you might want to um, be doing the dishes or weeding or whatever else you, you may have to do while you're listening to it. But it, it is surprisingly, uh, surprisingly relevant to today. And I think also, for me at least, when I read, I usually read a novel. And the reason why I read novels is because novels build empathy and empathy for other people. And, and I think that get, Tolstoy is brilliant at like getting into the heads of wildly different people. The other thing that was surprising to me about rereading War and Peace is that he really, Tolstoy really describes systemic injustice quite well. And uh, not something I would have expected. Sometimes you read an author from uh, a couple hundred years ago and you're sort of horrified by, by what's in, and there's some horrible things in War and Peace, but, uh, but, but overall, like his understanding, there's this great scene where uh, Prince Pierre is about to be uh, assassinated by the French army. And he's sort of thinking about who is it who's going to kill him? And he realizes it's a system. And he, and that's, I think, uh, for people who are struggling to understand systemic injustice, that's another way in. That's a great recommendation. And, and Tria, do you have a, do you have a recommendation as well? Um, yeah. So my first one is, I think it's a, such a fantastic book. And if you have read it, reread it. But so you want to talk about race um, by Jima Olu. Um, and then I think a book that like I go to often at least every year, and I just think is a classic, is John C. Maxwell, Fail Forward. Um, getting very comfortable with failure. I think we all took some L's in 2020, and so let's recover from them. Um, and so that is a book that I um, that I read often. So Cool. Well, thank you for those recommendations. I'm, I'm excited to share those with, with everyone. And thank you for the conversation, because there was so much interesting stuff there. So I'm really excited to share this. And yeah, I would really urge everyone to pick up a copy of, of Just Work. I can't wait to have a physical copy in my hand uh, because I'm going to be reading through it. They're um, here. They're reading here. through You'll it again. They look fantastic. Um, so yes, Kim, Trier, thank you so much. That was, a, that, that was great to talk. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the very end. I hope you took something away from that conversation. I found that super interesting. Now, courtesy of the Journey Further Book Club, we have 10 copies of Just Work to give away. So the first 10 people to email me, podcast at journeyfurther.com with their postal address will win one of those books. My name is Nathan, by the way. It would be great to hear from you. If you want to learn from more great business leaders like Kim and Tria and discover other books which can help change the way you work, then do join the Journey Further Book Club community. Just head to journeyfurther.com to find out more. Up next week, we have the one and only Rory Sutherland on the podcast. He doesn't really require much of an introduction. I can't wait to share that with you. I'll see you then.